A Mormon Stories is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. To support this podcast, please donate today at GayMormonStories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. And thanks for listening. Good day. This is Daniel Parkinson, and this is my first chance to do a biographical interview as part of the Gay Mormon Stories podcast. And today I have the amazing opportunity to interview Berta Marquez. Berta Marquez is someone who a lot of people in the LGBT Mormon community know about because she's been so active and so activist involved in a variety of fronts. She's playing a very important role at Mormons Building Bridges, and she's also working with lesbian gay homeless teens, and she's probably got some more stuff up her sleeves, but she's got an amazing story that she told me a little bit about so far, so some of this I know a little bit about, but it's going to be an exploration for me too, because there's a lot I don't know about, so I'm really excited to introduce Berta. So Berta, do you want to say hi? And Sure, sure. Um, thank you for having me, first of all. Yeah, so essentially, I'm, I'm, as you mentioned, helping out with Mormons Building Bridges right now. Most of my energy is going towards the program that you mentioned called Safe and Sound that I'm in the process of co-founding through Ogden Outreach to help to find host homes for LGBT homeless teens because there is such a high, uh, disproportionately high rate of um LGBT homeless teenagers, not just nationally, but that goes up even more in Utah. We can talk a little bit more about that later. And then, like you say, a couple of other things here and there, such as singing with the One Voice Choir, which is for LGBT people and straight allies, from mostly from the LDS faith tradition, of course, all are welcome to participate. Um, so yeah, it's just been my pleasure and privilege to have the opportunity to hopefully uh, leave the world a little bit better for um, the LGBT youth that are coming after me, particularly those being born within the LDS faith tradition, as it were. Yeah, and I'm excited that we're going to get a chance to talk about each of those projects you're involved with. Even though you might have a small involvement, I really want to talk about them, partly to just educate our listeners about what are some of the programs that are out there, and you're really in touch with what's going on in Utah, at least with the LGBT Mormon community. So this is fantastic. Um, but since this is a Mormon Stories, and we're using the Mormon Stories format, I really want to start at the beginning. And really the beginning is actually before you were born, because your your Mormon story really starts, I mean, I don't know when it starts, but a super important part of it starts with your parents. So let's start with the story of your parents, the background story or the Mormon story of your parents, and then, of course, your early years, because I think this is really relevant to your journey. Absolutely. So I will just try to share that part of my story as succinctly as possible. My my parents are both converts to the church, and my father in particular, and relaying to me his personal history, which was one, you know, of, of poverty and, and want in important ways. Um, he didn't have his first pair of shoes till he was 11. He had two jobs at a very young age, I think around 10. So he, he has told me a lot about growing up, um, feeling always and seeing the social injustices around him uh, as a young person and then 
so so that once he became a convert to the LDS Church, uh, those sensibilities didn't wane, and in the late seventies, there was a, a a movement sweeping a zeitgeist, if you will, sweeping across Central and South America towards progressive reform, and that took a variety of of um, shapes or expressed itself or in, in a variety of ways, uh, whether it was working towards indigenous land rights, the election of more progressive officials, or workers' rights, all kinds of stuff. However, right around that time, the governments all, with the support of the United States in many instances, began, both through training um, as well as the provision of personnel and so on, um, began sort of a counter movement against these progressive elements because they didn't always favor American economic interests, um, such as with the American Fruit Company, for example. In in, uh, 1954, in our country, we elected, through the democratic process, a president that was very much a socialist democrat, and wanted to reclaim the land from American Fruit Company to give to the indigenous people to farm again. Um, so, long story short, there was a CIA-aided coup, um, and you can learn about this from the CIA historical sources, which are available through the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, in in the place of Arbenz, the uh, progressive president that had been elected was placed one of the most totalitarian dictators in the history of Central South America, but he favored American economic interests. So for the next two decades, Guatemala, you know, uh, reeled from the consequences of that, from the frustrations of, of uh, having sought and having had hope in the possibility of change and having that retracted forcefully through mil- through military force, essentially. However, again, in the in the 70s, there was a nascency of that great desire for progressive reform, and what that ended up meaning for our family is that my father began to feel that he ought to do something or get involved uh, to help to improve the lot of laborers in the country. He says that he just felt, as he studied it and learned more about the gospel, that it was important to seek after the needs of the disenfranchised, the forgotten. He prayed and fasted. So I missed that he had converted then to the Mormonism at this point. Yes, absolutely. And um, he just says that the more that he learned about the gospel, uh, the more that he felt that it was in in keeping with advocacy work uh, to seek after the needs of the disenfranchised and forgotten, for him specifically trying to improve the law of laborers in the country. So he fasted for before becoming involved for a week, I believe, before going to his bishop and saying, you know, this is how I'm feeling. I want to help in the following ways. Um, what do you What do you think that I should do? And and his bishop essentially said, if you feel that it is uh, it is a correct and a good thing to work for the rights of your fellow laborers, then you ought to do that. And so that is how my father began to get involved. He was at the time working for the Coca Cola Company, which has kind of a a nefarious history uh, in Central and South America and other parts of the country. Um, Amnesty International has determined that they were involved in the assassination of approximately six workers' rights advocates, including uh, union leaders and so on. And my father would came to know many of these people and, and became involved. 
by starting to help to organize um, unions within the different Coca-Cola plants and so on. In the eventuality of things, what that became or came to mean is my father is a very intelligent guy. And even though he didn't have the opportunity to com complete a formalized education in the upper grades, as it were, he's very capable and very articulate. And so he was continually asked to fill broader roles within the movement to the extent that eventually he was asked to become secretary general of a national workers coalition uh, in Guatemala. The men, two, the two gentlemen before him in that position had both been assassinated. Wow. But my father decided that it was important enough that, you know, he accepted the position. It is around this time that the assassination attempts began directly on our family. Um, it's important to understand that there was an aspect of Mormonism as well. There was a group of bishops and stake presidents that were deeply committed to the progressive causes of uh, within the country, as it were. And they actually <laughs> were practicing the gospel very much along the the strain or the philosophies of revolution theology, which for those who are unfamiliar is the interpretation of, of the Bible or the gospel as a whole as necessitating the pursuit of social justice for those who are disciples of Christ. These, uh, these bishops and this group of bishops and stake presidents eventually were the ones who helped us in the following ways. At one point, they, they even offered to provide uh, protection and firearms for my dad, um, but wow. he never he never wanted to uh, wield, you know, a firearm. Eventually, he had to because so many that were involved, lawyers, many of them, LDS ecclesiastical leaders, school teachers, journalists, and other professionals um, were being assassinated, and some through ambush or disappeared. And when you're disappeared, what that means generally is that you're taken, tortured they get intel from you, names and so on, and then kill you anyway. So my father said, towards the end, I began carrying a gun, not necessarily so that you can fight anyone off in the, in, in the instance or case of an ambush, but so that you can take your own life and therefore not be taken and disappeared. Yeah, it, it, it's fairly, it's, it's a fairly intense story. Um, I, I was born during this time. And so for me, what that ended up meaning or the relevance and importance that it has for me is that I've inherited through the political history of my family a form of Mormonism that bespeaks the pursuit of social justice and the seeking after and binding the wounds of those who are disenfranchised. Yeah. And so it has helped me a great deal because as I came to BYU, you know, and had the sudden loss of bearings of participating in a hardly conservative form of Mormonism that I had never encountered before, I could have easily become disaffected seeing the gospel or its cultural expression within the state yeah. as what Mormonism is. But because I grew up in Spanish wards and because I grew up with these deeply progressive parents who were always serving their community and and ward members in very real material ways. I, I was able to reclaim Mormonism for myself, as it were, from yeah. this very conservative expression or form. 
But can we can we talk about a little more? I know it's not super directly to the subject, but it's terribly interesting about the phenomena that was going on in Guatemala within the church at the time. I think this is amazing, an amazing thing that I don't think most people are aware of that that there was a lot of Mormon bishops and a lot of Mormon state presidents, a lot of Mormon leaders who were fighting for social justice and people lost their life. Can you explain that that phenomenon more to me? Sure, absolutely. So the conservatism that expresses itself in the United States doesn't necessarily take that form in places or countries where social injustice is so marked that really to be a Mormon means to be progressive in nature. And particularly during this ver- this era of heightened not only awareness but conflict, yeah. um, there are, again, you know, many within the church and particularly in positions of power insofar as ecclesiastical uh, leadership roles are concerned that decided to support the work of, for example, um, indigenous rights, of workers' rights, of opposing the military dictatorship and power, and not just not just in, in the form of, like, let's say, bespeaking it in private conversation, but in very real material ways that, again, actually took the form of whether it was, you know, writing pieces as journalists, because many of the ecclesiastical leaders were professionals, or um, doing the legal work of pursuing, you know, people who were being unjustly arrested, for example, um, and giving them representation within the judicial system, and that sort of thing. I, I can't really name names, because some of these people are still alive. There's a blanket democracy in place in Guatemala. They would still face retribution. In fact, very recently, <laughs> even my father like came up as somebody um, as because the international courts have begun to pursue legal action for human rights abuses with uh, some of the players on the stage of America or of Guatemala's civil unrest and eventually civil war between you know the sort of the progressive movement, what would eventually become armed guerrillas and the um, right-wing military dictatorship. The Guatemalan government has responded in kind by um, reinstituting many of its repressive measures, um, with the including assassinations and so on. And so, because some of these men that survive still live in Guatemala and have families, you know, I can't really name names nor my father do so for me. <laughs> um, right. In in the name of protecting them, but many of them, you know, if they themselves were not assassinated, such as a very close friend of my father's who was a bishop and a journalist who was ambushed and killed. Um, they lost family members in the process through sequestering, through in, in an attempt essentially to get to, you know, the individuals who were actively involved. But they, you know, they saved our lives towards the end when our physical safety was just deeply compromised. We were on a hit list, my, my, both my dad, my mom, and I. They had to change their appearance and, and be separated. There was kind of an underground railroad-esque sort of thing in which we were moved from house to house within this network that was created by these bishops and stake presidents so that we would be untraceable. 
Now, was this was this phenomena pervading the church in Guatemala, or was this just a subgroup that your father happened to be connected into or tied into, or would you say it really pervaded the LDS church in Guatemala at the time? That's a really great question. That's not something that I'm entirely certain of. I, I you know, I can ask my father later and speak to that. Yeah. Um, I know that there was a very specific group uh, with very specific goals. I don't know if that was something that was that had a hold within the broader. Uh, context of the institutional church in Guatemala as a whole. Do you think the Mormon church was looked at as a place that was harboring, you know, revolutionaries? Or or do you think it was more just a matter of certain individuals who who were... It, I, I would say it was more of a matter of certain individuals. Um, and if anything, <laughs> to this day, actually, um, like LDS persons who particularly those who were not Latino were looked upon with suspicion as being CIA operatives, actually, because, you know, Mormonism has its its birthplace in the United States. And there was this very real paranoia that that there was, again, like this potentiality of a sort of like infiltration as it were and not and I wouldn't necessarily say that it was widespread but we have we are personal friends with um, for example one gentleman who served his mission there eventually married a lady from Guatemala that he met and lived what was planning to live out his entire life in Guatemala yeah. and had a oh, you know, farm and all kinds of things and it was very it became very dangerous for him his wife and their children because you know, he was white, she was Guatemalan, he was Mormon. And so the, um, the gov- like the, the military and the judicial system and police force, all of which work in tandem to maintain the status quo, which involves um, the concentration of, and control of resources, all kinds of stuff. They would accuse him and look upon him with suspicion as being a CIA operative. And then the guerrilla um, members <laughs> would accuse him and look upon him as potentially... Um, as uh, with suspicion as well, um, and so because he was American, and so right, Americans exactly. are involved with CIA, and CIA is a right. part of the revolution, the overthrow in the first place. And uh, there's a lot of Mormons in the CIA, so yeah, it's. Precisely. It, I'm sorry, and and I, I misspoke. So the government, as it were, looked on him with suspicion as being a, a guerrilla collaborator. And the, the guerrillas looked upon him as being a CIA operative. <laughs> so he just couldn't fit in anywhere in that scenario. The, oh, my league, goodness. You know, and so, yeah. you know, the, the dynamics are interesting, different and complex. I think right now the church is completely distanced itself, understandably, I think, as it in, in, in form is even from the politics of the country to protect itself, although it never officially in a tacit or codified way was involved in politics. Rather, it was these uh, individuals, both ecclesiastical leaders and none, who simply felt that to be a disciple of Christ or to be a truly a somebody who believes and lives in the gospel meant that they could not simply stand by and allow for many of the atrocities that were taking place in the country at that time, and some, some of, it, of which continue, you know, to right. this day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so continue then with how, what then did happen to your family? How did you guys manage to survive? Survive <laughs> and, and... Yeah, so essentially they decided, they, as in the, my father's organization, as well as all of these 
persons uh, that they knew in positions of power who had the contacts and so on, that what we needed to do is um, obtain asylum in, in one of the embassies that was more or less supportive of the progressive movements uh, within the country, because then that is considered sovereign territory of the, of the country in question, right? And so they decided to hold a, a press conference to drive my family and one other activist into the Valenzuela embassy safely, because if there was a press presence, then uh, it would be less likely that there would be any kind of assassination attempts. And so we were able to get into the embassy safely and were there for two months. The Venezuelan embassy. Precisely, yes. Um, during that time, you know, there was like military men surrounding the compound and taunting us. My dad says that you, you feel so powerless and yet you have to do something. So we were living in sort of like an attic space within the um, within the embassy. And he said he had um, like a basically a, a glass bottle of alcohol. And if they stormed the embassy, he would set the room on fire and take us to the roof to sort of like increase the likelihood that we would be unreachable and would survive. I mean, so it's it's a mind, it's a survivalist mindset where you constantly must ask yourself what you're going to have to do, you know, and it's something that followed us um, through our exile. Eventually, we were able to secure written guarantee that we would not be harmed if we left the country and did not return, which is how we ended up in Costa Rica, where we were for and lived 40 years. Costa Rica, however, was working in tandem with the Guatemalan government, arrested my father and was going to extradite him to Guatemala, where he would be in all probability executed. There was a group of people in Sweden who protested. And just a sec, so Costa Rica was doing this? They were extraditing people to Guatemala during that period? They were going to extradite my father. I don't know if they were doing that to other people, but my mom says we visit him in jail and that sort of thing. I, I have no memories of this, but there was there was protests in, in Sweden, which got on the international headlines and so on. And so Costa Rica backed down from that and released my father. But we had to leave after two years. And then we went to Mexico, where we lived for four years. In Mexico, they still, and by they I mean the Guatemalan government, came several times through uh, messengers, as it were, to try and bribe my that if we would provide names, contacts, places, and so on. You know, basically, like we would, we could be wealthy. <laughs> my father, of course, wouldn't collaborate. Then, in in 1985, there was an, an earthquake, a massive earthquake that hit had its epicenter very close to the city, Distrito Federal, the capital um, of Mexico City. Yeah, and and when that happened, the Mexican economy collapsed to the extent we lost our savings in American dollars and could only acquire part of that in the devalued Mexican peso. And so... At that, by that time, um, all of my father's family had already emigrated to the United States. And so we decided that it was time for us to come to the States where we <laughs> lived for the first six years in a little barrio called Santa Ana in Orange County. Yeah. It was pretty much its own little Latino country. I didn't see my first white girl my age until about three years into living in the States. And so how old were you when you got to the States then? Yeah, we, well, I was six years old. Okay. And I remember thinking when I saw this blonde look, and I, was, and I didn't even know the words or the vernacular because I was still learning English. And so I was just like, why does she have the blue eyes and yellow hair? I thought, <laughs> no, you know. Yeah. 
it was really interesting. So we were there for, for for six years. I would say the happiest years of my youth, even though, you know, there was a lot of there was gang violence, helicopters hovering overhead, and all of that. But I was just an oblivious, happy kid, you know. And it was so much safer than what you had gone through in Guatemala. And sure, so I sure, yeah. And that was an improvement. Yeah, and they were my happy tomboy years. You know, when you're a kid, you're pretty much oblivious to what's really happening. During this time, uh, I was from the ages of 6 to 11, I believe, or, or the latter end of my being 5 to 11 that we lived in Santa Ana. And, you know, so I was young enough to be oblivious to our history as a family um, and the marital dynamics of my parents. Exile casts a long shadow, right? And most of the couples and families who did make it out, didn't. those marriages didn't survive. My parents' marriage was not without its casualties, but I was young enough during that time that I didn't know about any of that. The ways in which the persecution that we'd experienced reared its ugly head in my young, in my youthfulness, <laughs> Um, was just an sudden inexplicable bouts of terror and and what I call the running dreams, which I had until about the age of 28, where we were always running and people were after us and we needed to get to safety. And sometimes we were able to and sometimes we weren't. And these were fairly persistent dreams up until, as I said, um, some year, a couple of years ago. But the, I didn't really become aware of or acquainted with the sort of like intimate details of what happened to us and, and my father in particular until I became a film student at BYU and decided to try and figure out because we had a very strained relationship. Him understandably suffering from the throes of PTSD was not able necessarily to be close to our family. He basically went through a period of great disenchantment with God, did not participate in the religious life of our family, and um, could not be emotionally close to us. All of the, mar- all of the markers of PTSD, uh, along with you know nightmares and all kinds of things, anger, a feeling of powerlessness. And, and so I decided, I want to figure out what happened to us, why we didn't have the sort of the typical mother, father, or I'm sorry, daughter, father relationship that so many of my friends seem to have and that I, in many respects, needed in my formative years. And so I decided to do a small piece about it. And he surprisingly agreed to do interviews with me. He really, he didn't, wouldn't speak and had not spoken to anyone in detail about all of the things that had happened. But somehow, when I turned on the camera, it became this mediator that allowed him to be open and detailed about the sorrows and horrors of what he had seen and experienced in a way that he had never done before, which I think was important towards his healing process, and which I'm grateful for because it helped me to love and forgive the father that I didn't have when I realized that he had his own history of sorrows and inhibitions, a lifetime of them, you know? Yeah. And so that's that's kind of basically how I came to learn later on in my young adulthood about sort of like the details of the death and destruction that surrounded my mother and father's marriage from a very early age, as it were. Um, and, and I came to understand a little bit more about myself as well. Yeah. Well, um, it was in your psyche there. I mean, even though you couldn't remember the details, you 
remember the fear and the fear that was present in your parents even after that. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised it impacted you. Yeah, my father and I both, I like to joke that we're kind of genetic replicas of each other. Both of us dealt a great deal with uh, with depression and anxiety and other PTSD-related um, difficulties. And so through that process, I, I came to love him and appreciate the legacy and inheritance of the pursuit of social justice. Yeah. Um, he's now a, bi- a bishop, a hippie bishop. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is somebody who is willing to be, like he started a community garden for our ward before becoming a bishop, like, you know, and is willing to be involved in the lives of his little flock, if you will. But he's um, literally the bishop of the ward where you live. The Spanish ward, yeah. Okay, um, oh, wow, okay. So there has, been a, there has been an entire renaissance that our family underwent that involved the healing of my father, of our parents' marriage. So both through, I think, the process of my father becoming open about what happened to him, the horrors and, and terrors of what he was exposed to, what happened to our family, beginning to process that, my mother and father learning to become close again, my father coming out to Utah, what happened is I I went to, I came to BYU. Before we get to this, let's go back and talk more about in order of your childhood, you know, that we got you to 11 years old in the barrio. (laughs) Um, So tell me about your Mormon experience growing up and your and your adolescence. Absolutely. So after being in Santana for approximately six years, we had enough mobility economically to move to a suburb instead of the barrio, you know? Okay. Um, and so we ended up moving to, I would say, a lower middle class neighborhood um, in the Inland Empire at that time. There was a recession, but there was also a lot of new housing developments, a lot of new tract housing uh-huh. neighborhoods uh, with fairly affordable homes. Um, and so we decided to move out there. And that's sort of where I began <laughs> to go into crisis from this very carefree childhood to suddenly becoming a displaced adolescent in that social setting where you are expected to fit certain gender roles <laughs> okay. and where I could no longer be just a carefree tomboy, but had to try and adopt certain feminine characteristics and roles. And it, it was difficult to do anyway because we were just so poor that it wasn't like I could go out and buy a new wardrobe and have all the little accoutrements of the right. You know the high the other kids who were in the high school that I the initial high school I attended um, the junior high and so on, and so I just kind of became a very angry kid, and really didn't stop being so for for that feeling that unyielding sentiment of not being able to fit in fully, um, insofar as gender roles to some extent are our, our own the poverty of my family and my inability to have. You know, the, all the things that made make it so that you as an adolescent can fit in, right. relatively speaking, you know. Also, during this time, I think that we were no longer in complete survival mode as far as um, economically just desperately trying to survive as we were in the initial years. My father had established um, his... Uh, like an appliance repair business and so on. And while we certainly never stopped struggling economically, I think 
the luxury of simply focusing on survival sort of waned a little bit and the real problems of being strangers in a strange land this wasn't a necessarily primarily latino culture or neighborhood anymore of of still struggling economically but really of all of the things associated with displacement and the inheritance of loss yeah. surfaced in our family life in the in all kinds of forms but Primarily in the forms of, I, I think, just always a great deal of anger and antagonism among each other. Um, How many brothers and sisters did you have by now? Uh, there was six of us, eventually seven. So Seven I siblings. Was, right. And, I, I, you know, I was born in Guatemala. My brother was born in Costa Rica. Two of my sisters were born in Mexico. And the rest of my siblings were born here. Um, okay. And it's kind of funny because you can tell when we came to the States. I mean, it starts with like Berta, Luisa, Camilo, Fabio, Fatima, Yvette, Fabiola, and then Doris, Stephanie, and Sammy. <laughs> okay. So they were trying to fit in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, becoming a, a cultured aided, as it were. But it's really interesting because through this entire process, my father refused to become completely assimilated like he uh -huh. would he would not even though he's so intelligent he wouldn't speak English and he would primarily seek out a Spanish clientele and he wouldn't all of these things that were I think a consciously on on his part part of the conflict of being in a country that had helped to destroy the process of progressive dem of a progressive democracy in Guatemala so he probably had some bitterness towards the U.S. and understandably <laughs> And so you can imagine that difficulty, right? Because yeah. in a sense, it's a place where we can be safe and we can hopefully survive economically. But then it's also the place that was in important ways the source of, of displacement and of death and destruction throughout Central and South America. I mean, if you learn and study about the School of the Americas and the support the U.S. government provided to right-wing militias and training and the how they helped with the overthrow of other democratically elected progressive governments such as in Chile and, and so on. Um, Argentina you know, you can and Uruguay and yeah, there's a long list. Oh, a, a long, long list um, of, you know, the sins of a democratic country that while hopefully in some ways legitimately being the leader of the free world and other very important ways supporting and putting into place deeply corrupt and deeply repressive regimes in the name of economic imperialism, you know, so you can imagine for my dad how it was, you know, it hasn't been really until lately that he's begun to embrace, you know, the United States more as, as our home. Right. Yeah. And so. But going back to adolescence, what about your church experience? Was church a refuge for you or was it just more of this conflicted um, feeling as, as an adolescent where you, in a Latino branch still, or were you? We, we were. And it? so, yeah, it was, it was a good, good experience for me in the sense that my mother, my siblings and I could participate in the life of a, our little Latino community within the structure and faith tradition that we had always known. Uh -huh. By this time, my father became completely inactive and, and that was a source, source of hardship for us. Because we wanted, you know, we are taught families are forever, but in order for that to be possible, you know, you must all must all be part of the process of living the gospel. I wanted my dad to be a priesthood holder and to provide us with blessings and 
be and in a way I equated that with maybe also we could then have the emotional intimacy that I longed for and needed so much you know mm-hmm. so it was a good thing is insofar as what my mom says is every country lived in wherever we were and whatever our circumstances always we found the body of the saints and they embraced us and took us in and provided us with very real and material support and love to minimize some of that very terrible displacement of leaving everything you've ever known behind including your family your support system your culture your life everything you know and and that continued to be the case both in Santa Ana and eventually in the Inland Empire in Riverside County in a little town where we lived called Paris Uh Um, and I you know was very happy active I mean I up until about 12 years of age I definitely gave my young women's leaders hell (laughs) Um, as in as in, uh, like, during this camp, I would run away, and I just wanted to be, like, climb trees, and they would have to send, like, the priesthood leaders, like, search parties, <laughs> and, you know, I would, like, be kind of mean and, and uh, walk out of seminary, and my mom kind of had to force me to go, but then after around that time, and I continued to very much be a tomboy, I uh, began to embrace it more fully, and by it, I mean the gospel and the young women's program. And to the extent that eventually it became a f- source of solace from sort of the the sort of some of the decimation that we were experiencing as a family. Uh-huh. And I sort of almost I, I was my mother and I, I think, were the most, I guess you could say, active and committed. And I, I felt like my mom's partner in all of this as the oldest, I always felt. Like I needed to be an example in that respect after, you know, like after about 12 years of age. Yeah. So eventually I, I always throughout both childhood and onto adolescence. And then I, I always be, would befriend people that were considerably older than me, me so that in high school, my best friends, one were, was my grandmother's age and the other one was a mother of five that taught seminary my seminary class (laughs) they were like my anchors because I always I wanted and I longed for the adult world you know Uh um but the point being that through them and through my friendships for example with an institute teacher later I had the opportunity to come out to the quote-unquote promised land or Zion or Utah or whatever for education week which for me was heaven, the possibility, the promise of everything that I wanted in my family, right? And I would come back with all kinds of material and like pictures of Jesus and a framed copy of the or the family. So you were doing this as a teenager, going to the especially for youth, or was it a similar program? Oh no, it was just um, Education Week, which okay. was. So I attended that a couple of times, and I was like, oh, this is where I want to be. This, is, you know, I I hadn't yet identified any potential for conflict between me and my propensities or attractions, which I actually, I I didn't become self-aware as it were insofar as my attraction to women until Proposition 22 happened. Up until that time, I honestly, honestly saw no contradiction between my attraction to women and being LDS at all. They were completely in harmony with each other. <laughs> I think part of, Yeah, well, and I think part of it, honestly, is that I was very fortunate in that my parents never tried to force me into a heteronormative mold other than my mom 
saying, okay, fine, I'll buy you that Star Trek uniform you want for Halloween if you will go to this church dance, you know, okay. <laughs> like stuff like that. Or maybe, mija, just wear a little bit of lipstick, I don't know, just a little bit, you know. <laughs> um, but other than that, I was never expected to or forced to be anything other than who I was, which was really nice. And so I never, at least at home, while certainly at school, I didn't necessarily like fit that fully feminine identifying role or whatever. I never felt any kind of conflict between myself. Really, I didn't begin to become self-aware in that respect and really prefer women to men at least until around the age of 15 to 16. But even then, there was no conflict between my religious personhood and that propensity. I, I continue to be attracted to guys, I, you know, and presently self-identify as bi at a ratio yeah, yeah. of approximately 25% to 75%. 75% towards women. and Preci- Precisely, yeah. Um, however, um, in, in my young adulthood at that time, I was serving as, I believe by then, I was already serving as president of the Stake Institute. Now, just a second. Let me, let me um, anchor myself. You said Prop 22 um, was a moment where you realized that this attraction to women was more important. And what? how old were you when that, what age? Um, yeah, so I was about either 18 or 19 when it happened. I'd have to do the math. Okay, but um, meanwhile, but, after age 15, you were sort of aware of some drawing, draw towards women, but you didn't see it as any problem thing. It was just... I, absolutely, and okay. I, I, con- I continue to have crushes on guys, and okay. I, I wasn't internally conflicted about it. My conflicts were primarily associated with the, the difficulties in our family life at that time. I Meanwhile, you weren't doing the stereotypical lesbian thing, like going for all the sport teams or... You know, no, I mean, was... I, like I did. No, no, no. I no. But I mean, I would dress not like a boy. I had long. I, I mean, eventually, I did crop my hair into a pixie cut. But that was very much a '90s thing, and it was okay yeah. for women to do that, you know. Yeah. But I was very much into watching the Ellen Show and Xena Warrior Princess. Okay. And you know, it's just really That's funny. Stereotypical. Like, I, I started like stereotypical pop culture things that I was interested in, but I yeah. wasn't necessarily going to start like acting on any of that, you know, I was, again, most primarily, like most of my inner turmoil and conflict at that time was associated with the very difficult things that we as a family were dealing with insofar as the fallout of the inheritance of loss again, you know, and how PTSD rears its ugly head and how that created a disconnect within our family life insofar as both our, our, our practice of our faith, but not having our father be a part of that as well as just his very much his separateness or his sep- while we were still living in the same home, I always felt like he was the guy who would only occasionally come out of the garage where he was, would might be fixing a fridge to um, just say something angry, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, my friend from that time, I mean, I, I, I thought maybe I just imagined this period of time as being so because I myself was an angry teenager, but I have a, a friend from that time who just says, yeah, man, like I remember that there's just, just a lot of anger. <laughs> um, um, so there was just a lot of, a lot of anger and antagonism and yeah. it just really unhealthy behavior, familial dynamics and behaviors, you know? So, but I still continued very strongly to identify with Mormon orthodoxy. It was again, for me, 
particularly after the age of 12, I think, until about the age of 22, perhaps, a foundational source of comfort. Um, but when Prop 22 came around in California, I remember, I still remember, we, my mother and I had had a conversation previous to this. She went into my room and she saw that all the pictures and posters that I had in my room, granted they were Star Trek posters, but still it was all the women, <laughs> not, <Okay>. <laughs> not, you know what I mean? Or, or like Xena Warrior Princess. Um, and, and she looked around and she was like, mija, you are, are you attracted to women? You know? And, and, and I was like, um, and I started crying and was like, yes, mom. And, and, and all that she said was like, well, you know, Elder, Elder Oaks um, has said something about that. And, and uh, I think, you know, that faith, faithfulness, like you'll be fine. And she, I think she gave, left the talk on my bed a couple of days later. And that was pretty much the end of it, okay. of any kind of conversation within that vein for over a decade. Did you read that talk or? I, I did. I And I'm trying to remember exactly which one it was, um, but it was like, you're a child of God, you can maybe overcome it. I'd have to read it again to really accurately be able to tell you what, what okay. it said. But I, that was pretty much the beginning and the end of it. And it was, again, no real conflict for me, even interestingly. However, when Prop 22 came along, and by that time, I was already in the Relief Society, I had left Young Women's. Uh-huh. And, you know, I had grown up being like the cl- the president of each of them, like my young women's classes and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually would become president of like the Stake Institute and so on. So so it was a, it was a very inherent part of my genetic spiritual makeup and, and continues to be. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I remember that all the all the Relief Society sisters and all the priesthood brethren were gathered into the Relief Society room, which was uh, was small for the number of people that were gathered in there. So it was kind of crowded. And our at that time, we were a branch, not yet a, a ward. Our branch president began to read this letter from the general authorities about supporting Proposition 22 which was to define, it was the president to, it was a precedence. To Prop 8, right? I remember that. To Prop that 8, and which... It was kind of like the defense of marriage, at, California Precisely, version, right? yeah. And the importance of protecting the family, and would we step up and, and be a part of this by canvassing, by participating in phone banks, and so on. And I was, I remember being terrified but also feeling like this is a pioneer moment where you really show your mettle, like you really show just how committed you are to the gospel. And so I'm going to participate, even though this is giving me anxiety, like I'm going to help because I I am committed to the gospel, you know. And I, I remember like, you know, the, the bishop giving this almost like pep talk of who will step up and everyone, almost everyone raising their hands. But I looked over to my mom and she was holding her head high and she didn't and would not raise her hand, Oh, really? Good for which I, I think was, I, I'm not sure. Um, and I haven't asked her necessarily, but was in deference to me potentially, or maybe just to a reticence in seeing the church being politically involved in such a way. I'm not sure. And so I, I did, like, I took home a list of people that I was supposed to call and encourage to vote for Prop 22 and so on. It would give me a massive anxiety attacks and that sort of thing, but it was like the thing you were supposed to do. And for me, that was the beginning of, wow, I don't, I, I think this attraction that I have is actually not 
something that is possible for somebody who wants to be a member of the church. And so I just, I'm going to need to keep it a secret and, uh, and, and not act on it, you know, and try as much as possible to fit the heteronormative mold. And I still, and it didn't stop me from continuing very much to be very orthodox in my views, nor, nor did that change really until a couple of years of, of being at BYU and sort of like realizing I either have to redefine and reclaim Mormonism in some way, or I, I'm not sure that it can be something that I can continue to operate within as a cosmology, as it were, you know. But really, I mean, again, uh, continued very much in this sort of, I'm going to be faithful, and whether or not I can expect to the full blessings of the church, or whether I'm going to have to be a secondary citizen in the kingdom, quote unquote, I'm still going to just, I'm going to do everything that I can to support the church and to be faithful and to do the work, et cetera, et cetera. But this was the first time you had to frame it that way. This is the first time it came to your awareness that this was actually a conflict. Precisely. Yes. Before that, it had never even crossed my mind. And so throughout those years, (laughs) I had, it was really interesting because while I always had guys pick up on me and that sort of thing, I also, women would a great deal and tend to be very forward with me, which I think is very, I don't know if it's just that I give up, give off an androgynous, I don't know, uh, (laughs) manner or what it is exactly. I mean, because I do, I'm very much a femme, I would say, I, I suppose, in the way that I dress you know, I love femininity now as I've grown older. I, you know, love stilettos along with power tools and, yeah. and, you know, that sort of thing. But anyway, I would just always turn away from that, you know. I was like, no, I'm not going to participate in this. And I, throughout my young adulthood, whether it was initially by attending community college, eventually transferring to BYU and so on, I uh, loved, for example, participating in my student wards. There was important ways in which I couldn't relate, such as not really caring about BYU football, you know, oh, yeah. gasp. Um, <laughs> I know how that is. Okay, and really resenting certain things like American heritage, um, because it is a very super conservative course about what the United States is and means, what the father, founding fathers really thought, it takes very much the... A very conservative approach. Well, I, I had the same feelings when I was at BYU. So. Oh, okay, yeah, and and also honestly, like not feeling that I fit in in any way, shape, or form into the social dating structure, uh-huh. because I wasn't, I didn't dress like a Mormon woman. I I wasn't. Again, I didn't want to go on a date to a BYU football game. I, you know, I and so I didn't. For the first time in my life, I. I didn't feel necessarily in in manners of courtship as well as friendship. Like I could relate to my roommates or to the guys in the ward, in my wards. Um, but this was also a time in your life where you would just come to BYU for the first time and and you're already sort of midway through your university career, right? Because you've done community college. So here you are in your first experience in a conservative Mormon environment absolutely conservative institution 
conservative institution, very homogenous. Um, in community college, it was people of all ages, very much a progressive setting, you know. And so it was a very much a loss of bearings in real and important ways. But I think particularly, again, I didn't fit within the social, the dominant social structure of let's play video, let's play board games and then go on a date Creative to a football game. Yeah. yeah, it just wasn't in my radar I mean I before coming to BYU I, I had almost married a guy and he was a professor of classical guitar and our dates consisted of going to for example he would cook a French meal and then we would go to one of the art museums in Los Angeles and then he'd play Scarlatti for me you know what I mean it was a different <laughs> you should have married it, him huh? it, well it, you know <laughs> except we had we had our uh, very important differences he was an atheist and I I wanted to have, you know, somebody at that time that I can marry in the temple and so on. Right. So, so there were there were some important things. He was also ridiculously wealthy, like all kinds of. But the, the point being <laughs> that the standard, as far as how you pay attention to someone, how you court them, and how the quality of what that courtship looks like was very different in my mind from let's go to the dollar theater and and. You know what I mean? And right. and yay, BYU football. And it just, I keep saying that, but it was really important in my first ward. And it was really interesting and funny. Uh, happily, and I really do think this was a matter of the universe, divine intervention, however it is that you want to frame it, sort of bringing a group of us together. I moved south of campus, and in south of campus, there's a sort of like conglomeration of old houses that your world travelers, your cosmopolitan souls, your artists and musicians who are BYU students all live in. Okay, that's where and I lived when I was there. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I happened to move into like that and for the first time began creating friendships with people who had seen the world and who were not necessarily ethnocentric in their views of others Um who were deeply desirous of doing good, in particular the last household that I lived in with roommates as a BYU student. Uh -huh. uh, one was, you know, in law school and wanted to practice micro, uh, to help with microcredit in organizations internationally. Another one was uh, going getting her ma uh, master's in social work. Another one was um, during like starting studying art history, and all of us were musicians, and all of us were bilingual, spoke at least two languages. Um, you know, we would pick up instruments, and the girls would break into four part harmony, and so on. And so, while it was the time, like at least at, as me being a BYU student, where there was a the the conflict of my my sexuality, the great secrecy and terror of it. And my great desire to maintain my faith, we're all coming to a, uh, a cusp or cresting it, if you will. Um, uh -huh. It was deeply helpful to have these really beautiful roommates who were so, so uh, kind and, and open-minded and... And socially um, progressive, you know. Progressive in important ways, yes, in some. Um, and so what ended up happening, however is there are two things really I think that throughout my 20s relentlessly haunted me. Um, one of them was my sexuality and the other one was my unyielding perfectionism to, okay. to the umpteenth power, <laughs> yeah. 
which is a very Mormon thing, right? Um, Be hard on yourself, right? Yeah, right, exactly. And the funny thing is, even after like going through the intellectual processes and work of saying, this isn't what is expected, you know, I, I, there is a separation between your performance and your worth, the worth of your soul and personhood. While I under- understood that intern- intellectually, I was never able to fully in- integrate and absorb that. And, and so what ended up happening, I mean, I remember, for example, during that time, I just, I had a, basically, I started struggling for the first time in my college career with my classes. I just became deeply, deeply depressed. I really started feeling like, man, there's not a place for me in BYU. I And, and I was in the film program, which is like, is full, chock full, like the English program and others of deeply progressive professors, you know, but I didn't, I didn't quite fit in there either because I wasn't accustomed to, I was accustomed more to like the small style, everybody interact and, and speak and, you know, sort of a thing of the community college setting and not like necessarily of being a small fish in a big pond where you really just kind of in the classroom setting, it's more rather than interaction that sort right. of thing so so BYU that has huge along, courses right right so so that kind of loss of intimacy that I had with my professors from from community college um you know along with this again terrible terrible and unyielding perfectionism along with the the my my sex my sexual self and identity and core and you're surrounded by people who are date happily dating and encouraged to do so and wow, will they go to every imaginable length, you know, to try and marry people off, Um, which I would find ways, subtle ways of making fun of. Like um, I developed this alter ego called Glenda Golddigger (laughs) and like for 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 award Valentine's dance, which is just it's a it's a comedic thing. You know, she's got like this giant blonde bouffant and was wearing a sash that said trophy wife slash gold digger (laughs) slash arm candy, you know. And it just and it gave everyone a good laugh. And, and it just I think like I wanted to like ease the inherent sort of like sort of pressure that is present at these kinds of events. You know what yeah. I mean? And so anyway, humor was definitely a good coping mechanism. But what ended up happening is I started struggling with my studies and eventually just stopped going. I was basically a paper and a project away from graduating, but I was so upset about uh, for the first time with uh, the my capstone or final paper and, and other things my capstone project but really just this one paper I was confronted with my intellectual limitations for the first time which had never happened to me on top of which I was dealing with my sexuality and sort of like the shame and uh, depression and suicide ideation that comes with secrecy and closetedness as well as uh, just a lot of things. And so I just, I left, basically. I have really kind professors who were willing to give me incompletes and let's just work with you and, you know, um, try to do this on a more extended schedule and so on. But I was just like, no, I'm I'm failing. I'm not thriving in this environment. I've already not done well in some other classes. And this has never happened to me before in my college experience. To me, when I couldn't go to a four-year school because I didn't yet have permanent residency, my intellectual prowess or ability, I, I almost wore it, or it was to me almost like, are, are you familiar with crime and punishment? 
Yeah. Perhaps. Okay, so there's there's that character, Katerina Ivanovna, right, who's dying from consumption in the worst kind of poverty, but she did dance before royalty once in her village and received a certificate for it. And she's constantly pulling out this ragged certificate to say, I am better than my surroundings. I am more than what I what is happening to me right now. And so to me, being able to like to excel academically, that was my Katerina Ivanovna certificate when I couldn't go to a four-year school week because I didn't have permanent residency and so on. Okay. So for the first time... So the immigration stuff didn't all get resolved till you were literally an adult, huh? Oh, absolutely. And that's a story in and of itself. We had to eventually petition a congresswoman because the INS was sitting on our... On our um, at the time, the INS, on our... Like, we'd already paid everything. It was in process until after I turned, went from 19 to 21, and then my entire family received their residency, but I could no longer because they took two years to process it. It was a whole Oh, so crazy you were going to get left out just because you passed the age. I passed the age. We, we've paid and taken care of everything for two years. We'd write letters, calls, nothing. Uh, our paperwork wasn't processed. And in that period of time, I turned 21. And so... Oh. I no longer qualified of, of all of our family members, you know, and I was the one who just deeply was hungering to go to a four-year school. Yeah. Anyway, the point being, though, that during that terrible time or very difficult time, right, um, of dreams deferred, however it is that you want to put it, the thing that always for me was a source, a foundational source of my identity and my ability to hold my head up was, well, that's that's fine, that's okay, but I'm gonna, I can keep a 4.0 GPA at community college. And I have these like friendships with some of my professors. And it was really funny, like things would happen. For example, I, I went to a library and one of the UC colleges and this kid assumed that I was one of the employees there and started asking me about how to research his paper. <laughs> and I just, I just pretended that I was a library employee because whatever, <laughs> he needed help. And I, I was like, this is so ironic right now that this kid, he's it, like, he is in this like, you know, prestigious um part of this prestigious uc system in california of universities um and i'm helping him with his research paper and 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 uh the resources available to him online and so on um and to develop his idea and i can't go to the school you know right um and and uh, people and things like that would just always happen it was really frustrating but anyway so one of the things that really helped me during that time was fine, but I'm, you know, this is the way in which I am superior to my surroundings or whatever. And so then, and it was fine. And at BYU, it still, it wasn't a problem. I could still do it. One class, I mean, I aced one class without ever, like, other than just maybe glossing some of the readings. You know, I was perfectly fine the first couple of semesters. But again, as, as more and more, as I began to feel more, more displaced in terms of a the dating culture at BYU as well as the the deeply conservative deeply deeply conservative monolithic monster of Utah cons Mormon conservatism how it expressed and manifested itself on campus and within the student wards being you know what I mean being Latino in a very white right. <laughs> environment the eventually my mom yeah, eventually my mom would come to BYU to get her MSW, her master's in social work. And it was really funny because her first semester and she was coming from Loma Linda sister school, which prides itself in being like deeply uh, diverse school. Right. And uh, and she was like, mija, there are no Latinos, there are no older peoples. 
And I was like, I know, Mom, welcome to my world. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was really funny. But anyway, as more of this and more, like, so there's a loss of bearings, right? Like, this isn't, this isn't necessarily Mormonism I recognize. Though, again, my last word was really wonderful as far as, like, our Sunday school discussions, the household within which I was living. But at that time, I was already in, co in conflict with myself insofar as, again, my sexual identity and how I could potentially fit that within a spectrum of what we were expected to do or become, hopefully, as Mormon women and BYU students, right? right? Plus, just becoming so deeply depressed that I could no longer perform at the level that I had, the level of academic achievement and expectation that I had for myself, you know? And so I just, I, I completely gave up. And instead, for two years, I, I, I dropped out of BYU and I stopped just even going to classes or completing any of it, any of the schoolwork. Um, and instead, I got a job with a private server company and learned Unix and Linux to do like private server maintenance, okay. which is I, it's a big change from film, I. but yeah. <laughs> again, I mean, like, if you have certain capacities, really, like, you can succeed in almost any setting, and I was able to learn very quickly as far as, like, the Unix and Linux operating systems and language code and, like, the command line and so on, and, and it, it was fun and interesting to me anyway, and I started, like, being, like, I started moving up the corporate ladder in the sense of I was promoted, like to over people who had been with the company for years, who were my superiors in position, and I was being headhunted by other departments within the company and so on. But I was just so depressed, so depressed about, about companionship, about desiring and wanting to, you know, and closetedness and that sort of thing that I just eventually, like I had just been promoted and I at first started telecommuting from home, which I could do with my particular position, but eventually would just start um, like sleeping through the day and popping clonazepam, you know, and which I, which makes for great songwriting. I eventually ended up writing a very good poetical song about it or whatever, or at least the people seem to like, but. Now, by then was your family living in Utah? Did they? At, by that point, they had already come up, and my mother had begun uh, her master's in social work. They had a home in Springville and so on. So eventually, I mean, to where I was really, like, on the nice as far as my superiors really super liking me and seeing me do some work, but also becoming concerned that I was no longer actively participating in the way that I should be considering my position, you know? Thank you for joining us today on Gay Mormon Stories. To discuss this episode with others, please check us out at gaymormonstories.org. If you want to see this podcast continue, please consider making a monthly donation, again, at gaymormonstories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. Music for this podcast was graciously donated by Clayton Pixton. Check him out at claytonpixton.com.
Why should this anxious load press down your weary mind? Haste His goodness stands approved, unchanged from day to day. I'll drop my burden.